0: DiscerningHearts.com presents a very special conversation with Dr. Larry Chapp, who is a retired professor of theology. He taught for 20 years at DeSales University near Allentown, Pennsylvania. In 2013, he and his wife opened the Dorothy Day Catholic Worker Farm in Harveys Lake, Pennsylvania. He is the creator and primary contributor to the Gaudium et Spes 22 block site. With Dr. Larry Chapp, we begin a series of conversations On the Pastoral Constitution on the Church in the Modern World, Gaudium et Spes. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Dr. Chapp, thank you again for joining me.
1: Hey, it's great to be back after a long hiatus from from our conversations.
0: The Pastoral Constitution on the Church in the Modern World, known as Gaudium et Spes, brought to us on December seventh, nineteen 1965, one of the most beautiful documents I've ever read. And I remember reading it originally when I was in college it's big, it's long. And yes, but it, I found it really more than edifying. Why is edifying not enough of a word?
1: I just loved it. I just loved it. Uh, yeah, I, I I maybe am not quite as enthralled by it as you are. Uh-huh. I would say that I would say that I like it. I like it a lot. I don't know if I'm necessarily in in love with it. And maybe I'll explain why. Obviously, I completely endorse its 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 fundamental message, but I I do think there's a, there's a couple of issues with Gaudium et that have to be uh, spoken of, and I say that as somebody who's a big fan of that document.
0: Well, and I'm glad you said that. I and mean, you know, the the thing that I think intrigued me so much when I first read it, when I had learned that uh, much of its structure was tailored by Pope Saint. John Paul II at the Correct. time, Cardinal Wotia. I mean, this yeah. really was an important contribution from him and then crafted out a bit in that process of formation from a young German bishop named Ratzinger.
1: And <laughs> yes.
0: so, I mean, he kind of gave a little bit more balance to what John Paul would write. And then, when it was put together, you could see how they ended up working. You know that you would see that that element of their style together. This is where it really first hit the road.
1: Yeah, uh, the the fact is, you know, Gaudi Mispes is the last document issued by Vatican II, and and probably with good reason. It's probably because it was the most uh, the most contentious of all the. Uh, conciliar documents it's the one it went through so many iterations so many writings and rewritings and rewritings because there were forces at play that that wanted it to read more like John the 23rd's Terrace. Uh, than than a, a, a more explicitly sort of christological, uh, completely faith-based uh, revelation-based document. It has to remember it. I mean, this John the Twenty Third was no longer around, but Pachemin Terras was one of John the 23rd's more more popular encyclicals because it was it was deliberately designed and written, you know, for for the world, for in a sense for even non-believers to pick it up, read it, and 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 get a sense of what the church thought on the on the issues of, of peace in, in the modern world and, and how to achieve it. And a lot of, a lot of the fathers at, at the council thought, well, in a document that's trying to reach out to the modern world, to try to reach out to the world, maybe we too should follow that path of sort of muting the Christological voice just a bit and talking in more, in more terms of natural law and in more generic non-revelational categories so as to reach a, a pretty broad audience. And so when I said I have certain reservations about it, that's, that's the reservation, that, that there is, I think, a, a certain naivete here and there in the document that is reflective of that idea that if we just drop the Jesus bits, then the world will listen to us. I think that is counterbalanced by the input of Rod Singer and John Paul II, and why I call my blog Gaudium et Spes 22, because it is paragraph section 22, that I think gets to the heart of it. They, de they, they Lubachian statement, you know, it's only really in the mystery of Christ that the mystery of man is, is fully revealed. And therein is the influence, I think, of of John Paul Ratzinger de Lubach in that document.
0: I guess it shouldn't have been a surprise that there would be a struggle when you're doing something that is so Different, really, wasn't it? Because this is a pastoral constitution, not a dogmatic, not a right, doctrinal, right. but a pastoral constitution. And John Paul, I think, when he gave up and uh, went up and essentially arguing to keep it in and let's him keep it moving forward.
1: Because right, right. he said
0: it, it's more of a meditation as opposed to a doctrinal type of, of dogmatic
1: Something. Oh, a- absolutely. This this is so fascinating to me to dig down the archaeology of this document because there were so many, you know, a great little book that sort of goes into this in some detail is by the, the Dominican Aidan Nichols. It's it's called Conciliar Octet, where he deals with sort of eight fundamental sort of themes in, in Vatican II. And he and he really digs down and unpacks this and and what, what he what he points out is, is that on the one hand you had um, the more liberal faction to put it, you know, sort of in these vulgar categories that sort of wanted that Pachaman terrorist sort of approach. Then you had the French who, from led by people like, Congar and Daniel Liu and others who wanted it to be very ressourcement, who wanted it to be a document deeply, deeply rooted in scripture and the church fathers and to speak in that language. But then you had Voitiwa and Ratzinger and, 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 and that side of, of, of the debate that in a sense was straddling, straddling both worlds. And it was it was in a sense Voitiwa who who steer, and, and Rotzinger who steered it in the direction that we see with Gaudium et Spes twenty two, uh, with with what Rotzinger later calls that sort of christological sort of time bomb that's right there in the middle, which which Rotzinger and John Paul considered to be the hermeneutical key not just to Gaudium et Spes but to the entire Council itself. So, we really can, I think, owe it to Voitiwa and Ratzinger that Gaudi Metspez ended up being rather profound despite itself. And just, you know, it's the work of the Holy Spirit, right? You got all councils are like this. I mean, go back to for, Ephesus and you see all the shenanigans of, of, of Cyril's group against the Nestorians. I mean, you wonder how in the heck how the heck did they ever come up with something as beautiful as Theotokos and, you know, that whole Christology that, it, and it's the same here. Uh, and and thank God for Wojtyla and Ratzinger, because they steered it in that Christological direction.
0: Well, it was the very last document. I mean, it was the very last thing they yeah, were voting oh, yeah. on, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah.
1: Oh, yes. And there were there were, to add even more confusion, there were voices who said, let's just not Issue any kind of a document like this at all, um, and it's what. What's unfortunate is that yeah, you know, the church was the victim in a sense of circumstances. The church was a victim of things beyond its control, and some could say, well, the bishops should have seen the signs of the times. They asked us. A- to read the signs of the times, and they didn't do it themselves. But, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. Nobody really could foresee the massive cultural revolution that was going to sweep over the Western world, really sort of beginning in 67, 68. You could see the sort of beginnings of it in 64, 65, but, but come on, could anybody really have predicted the tsunami of devast- cultural devastation that was going to sweep through the culture and therefore through the church? That's why I say the church, you know, here's a document that's essentially saying drop the fortress Catholicism uh, nonsense. As Balthazar would say, we need to raise R-A-Z, you know, raise the bastions in, not in order to let the world in, but to let the church out into the world. Um, But as Carl Barth wisely put it one time, she said the church opened the windows to the world and a hurricane blew in. And, and I think Therefore, Gaudi et Spes is often unfairly criticized by the radical traditionalists and others uh, for being the cause of so much uh, that happened in the church afterwards. But I don't think it really is. I just think that it was a beautiful document with a beautiful theological uh, insight into the God world relation, church world relation that got completely eclipsed by the tsunami culturally that came after.
0: Well, even looking at the title, I mean, it is again the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world, not right. for the modern world or something like that where it's given. But this is how the church operates in the world.
1: Oh, absolutely. And and that's why the document cannot be read in isolation. From from the rest of the council and and some wanted want to do that, but it can't be read in isolation for the rest of the council because it does link up directly, absolutely directly, to my theological hobby horse, which is the universal call to holiness that one finds in Lumen Gentium in particular, but also scattered throughout throughout the rest of the conciliar documents. The council was, as Bishop Robert Barron correctly notes, a missionary council. This was the vision of the church fathers. The church was trying desperately trying to break out of that defensive posture that it had adopted since the Reformation through the Enlightenment, through the Scientific Revolution, through all the political revolutions of the 19th, 19th century. The church had finally sort of broken out of that sort of defensive mentality, and it wanted to go out into the world. It wanted to share its treasury, share the beauty of Christ with the rest of the world. And to do that, you need you need the laity involved. And so there was this universal call to holiness that was re-emphasized. And I think this is exactly what the council fathers were after in Gaudium et Spes. You know, open the church up and unleash what Peter Morin calls the dynamite of the church, set the dynamite of the church off. And that is really the untapped resources of the laity.
0: Yeah, I, I was really struck when I first read it, just even that opening sentence. I mean, we won't go sentence for sentence, but in this particular case, I think it's so powerful. The joys and the hopes, the griefs and the anxieties of the men of this age, especially those who are poor and, or in any way afflicted, these are the joys and hopes, the griefs and anxieties of the followers of Christ. It shows that it, we're not removed yeah, yeah. from the world. We're in the world. I mean, we understand yeah. it. We share it.
1: And already, you do see the hand of of Wojtyla, uh there, because what that is expressing is what John Paul, you know, would later describe as solidarity. the the idea that Christ and our union with Christ does not create within us a sort of sanctity of of retreat or a, or an enclave. We are meant. To be like Christ, which is vicarious sufferers for the world, that is our vocation. We are to emulate the cross. We are to emulate Christ's solidarity with sinners, and you cannot do that if you're constantly throwing rocks at sinners from from your fortress. And and so, yeah, the the council begins with this rousing, beautiful statement of how we are all in this together. We are implicated. I am implicated in the salvation of my brothers and sisters. And, and, and that includes all of their hopes, dreams, aspirations, and sufferings.
0: It acknowledges the situation in the modern world. And just as you said earlier, could they have foreseen what was going to happen even a year or two after it was promulgated, how the world was so dramatically begin to shift. And yet at that time, when they were writing this, it seemed as though the world had shifted they had just gone through such experiences. I think back at that time now, and I was a very young child, but I still hear it from everyone, you know, wasn't those simpler times,
1: you know? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well,
0: yeah. But for uh, those, I mean, but for those who were in it, it didn't seem that way.
1: uh, Yeah. I'm, I'm 63 years old. I was about eight years old and 65, but I, uh, I do remember especially, you know, all of the complexity of that time, the Cold War, the Vietnam War, all that, all the, you know, all that stuff. And, and what has to be remembered and is often forgotten, Gaudi Metzpez is promulgated 20 years after the end of World War II. And most, if not all, of, of the men who were at that council were, were, in a sense, people who were adults or young adults uh, during, during World War II. And, the, and, and of course, there is a sort of Eurocentric sort of focus in, in, in the conciliar documents because most of the council fathers were, you know, the, the influential ones anyway, were Europeans. And Europe was still deeply, deeply wounded psychologically and scarred by, by World War II and, and, and its aftermath. And I think there was you know, there was the spirit of the United Nations and the cold war was raging and that was on their minds. And I think the council fathers just thought the time is ripe for the church to be a conciliator, for the church to be a mediator, for the church to be a sort of, you know, a a force for peace, a force for global solidarity. And those all sound like cliche and trite things now, but if you're a man who lived in the shadow of the Nazis, you take those kinds of things much more seriously than you know, a lot of modern, you know, people hear that, you know, and they think, Oh, they roll their eyes, more liberal gobbledygook. But that meant something to those men.
0: We also have to recall too that at the time of this, they're dealing with the reality too of a nuclear annihilation. I mean, yes. I, I when I was growing up, I mean we thought for sure this was going to happen, that at some point there would be a nuclear war. We were doing this ridiculous thing of diving under our desks thinking-
1: Duck and roll, baby. Duck,
0: yeah, exactly. Thinking that that somehow was going to protect us. But And that was always, for at least two or three generations, a very constant anxiety. I, I don't know if they, people feel that today, uh, generations now, but boy, that was, I mean, it could happen any
1: moment uh, it, it really really could i mean like i said i was a fairly young man in in the 60s uh, but i i felt it i felt the fear i remember in my elementary school doing the duck and roll drill under my desk of course the big the big joke among me and my classmates that it was i think pretty common at the time was yeah get under your desk put your head between your na- knees and you know kiss your B- petard <laughs> kiss your petard goodbye mm-hmm. because yeah we, even as little kids we knew this is stupid if a nuclear bomb goes off we're all going to die and and that was that was a very strong fear for a lot of people and it wasn't a false fear that could have happened and the council fathers knew that that it could have happened um, and and it was still a very real threat to them. And so, in other words, the concept of global solidarity and world peace, in which the church was a major player from its faith-based perspective, was still something back then that the council fathers believed could truly happen. The church could really play a positive role here. Um, unfortunately, after the council, the church lost its mojo, and 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 that didn't happen because people interpreted the opening to the world as letting the world rush in and everything just went to seed.
0: We'll return to our conversation with Dr. Chapp in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. A Prayer of St. Ignatius of Loyola Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that i have and call my own you have given all to me to you lord i return it everything is yours do with it what you will give me only your love and your grace that is enough for me amen We now return to our conversation with Dr. Larry Chapp. I think it's important to keep that perspective, though, of what their experience was and what their hope was. If you're talking about a, a pastoral letter, a pastoral constitution, one that is caused to meditate, and I know, especially from Coming from those standouts like John Paul and Benedict, that call to praying and reflecting, it would be essential, I think, to see the fruitfulness of it.
1: Oh, absolutely. And, um, you know, people, a a lot of very conservative types, now who are very down on Gaudium et Spes, are also very critical of it because it does not issue an explicit condemnation of communism, of the Soviet Union and, and communist China. But, you know, a lot of observers point a couple of things first, and this goes to the prayerfulness you, you were just talking about. It's it's not it wasn't the goal of the council fathers to articulate a political theology or a political theory or to take partisan sides and, any. The, the, you know, 99.9 percent if not a hundred percent of the council fathers probably despised the Soviet union and despised communism. Uh, But there probably was a sort of unspoken agreement uh, between the church and the Soviet union in order to let representatives from the Soviet union come to the council, that the council would not explicitly condemn the Soviet union. It would not explicitly uh, go after it. Uh, So there's a practical consideration, but a theological consideration is that the document was meant to instill universal call to holiness prayer the church has as as a peacemaker and that would not have happened if it would just have come out with both guns blazing saying capitalism raw communism horrible and and it it would have set it would it would have set things back i think I, i know there's who disagree with me on that but i i really think it was a very wise move on their part not to get bogged down into those sorts of cold war uh, Cold War issues, and to position the church simply as as a force of prayer, a force of christological power. Yeah,
0: it's essentially getting back to the roots. Uh, I mean, that's yes. that's where you can see the resource wand.
1: Yeah, you know, I I don't see a lot of. Uh, You know, you you read some of the very early, the pre-Nicene early church fathers, you don't see a lot of condemnation of imperial Rome in those documents. Now, granted, if you did, it might cost you you, you, your life. Nevertheless, the the church in the pre-Constantinian era, while having casting a rather jaundiced eye towards the empire for obvious reasons, nevertheless did not simply turn itself into a political force of opposition to the empire. And not just for practical reasons, there are theological reasons for that. And and it, it had to do with staying above the fray, not, not subsuming your Christological message uh, within this political ambit.
0: Uh, that, it kind of reminds me of uh, how Jesus Christ himself preached in his land at his time. Oh. Yes. How he was in the world.
1: Yes. I mean, Christ, Christ's message is, you know, follow me, enter into my kingdom. And if you, if you come into my kingdom and live my kingdom ethic, you will then have all else besides. In other words, it was his way of saying, put your priorities straight. Uh, if, if, you, if you live a life of holiness, it doesn't mean you're apolitical. It doesn't mean you're, you're retreating out into the desert. We're not Latter-day Essenes. Uh, But it does mean that the political in that explicit sort of governing power structure sense, the political doesn't come first. And Ratzinger makes this clear. And that's what Gaudium Espes is trying to make clear. There are deeper categories than than this sort of superficial political wrangling that's going on in the world.
0: It draws upon Rero Novarum from right. Pope Leo XIII it right. again those social encyclicals that came from John the 23rd but in its continual quest to maintain a lift up to recognize the dignity of every human life of the human person
1: yes i mean there are there are deep deep fundamental issues at stake revolving around the dignity of human life and the church, I mean, I, I, I you know, Gaudi Spes clearly wants the church to be an advocate for human dignity. I mean, w- w- lurking behind the scenes of, of Gaudi Spes, of course, is this the theology of Andre de Lubac, a uh, close collaborator of Wojtyla and, you know, Balthazar and Ratzinger and these guys. And one cannot forget the fact, therefore, that that document, Gaudi Spes, represents in some ways, and reflects and mirrors de Lubach's Christian humanism. I mean, read de Lubach's book, The Drama of Atheist Humanism, one of the most influential books in my young intellectual development, where, where de Lubach you know, sketches out the sort of secular atheistic humanism of our time and and what it will lead to. It will lead to Nietzsche's God is dead, dead end. It will lead to the destruction of human dignity in our time. Remember, de Lubach was a Nazi resistor. I mean, he lived through that loss of human dignity, as did Voitiwa. And this was a central, central concern of theirs, to position the Catholic Church as the champion of a Christian humanism with roots that go beyond the social encyclicals back to people like St. Francis de Sales, you know, and, and others, who were, who were pushing the idea. I mean, I taught at DeSales University for 20 years. So the Oblates there would probably kill me if I didn't bring Francis DeSales (laughs) into this conversation. I'm glad you did. Yeah. You know, that, that this is absolutely what Gaudium et Spes is saying. No if, ands, or buts. This This is what Gaudium et Spes is trying to do to position the church as the champion of a Christian humanism that it will take into the world and be a force for world peace and to save the world from the kind of human indignities that a secular humanism is going to create. Um, And we see now that the sort of nihilism of that secular humanism and its anti-life properties and not just with regard to abortion, those chickens are coming home to roost.
0: You know, sometimes I think it's because of the witness—the actual physical witness of how ugly, truly ugly, uh, we can be to each other. as yes. as they saw those; those Council Fathers saw through World War uh, Two, through the nineteen fifties. Let's not forget the rise of fascism and Marxism, and all the other, in other areas of the world, in the in, yes. in communist China and so many other areas that I don't know. When we say we've become soft is that we've been lulled over the last maybe 20, can we say 30 years of a relative peace. I know we've had wars in the Middle East which have been horrific and have caused devastation, but not the type that has rocked the entire world. Is that fair to say?
1: I, I think it is fair to say. I mean, during the Cold War, we, we had these uh, proxy wars and, you know, between Russia and the United States in Korea, in Vietnam and and some of the guerrilla conflicts in Central America and, and, and that sort of thing. Uh, but nothing, nothing that was global like like World War II. Nothing. The closest we come to it is the sort of silent I and mean, we call it the Cold War because nobody was killed. But the psychological, economic and cultural dislocation, globally speaking, created by the Cold War, which in some ways is still with us and maybe now resurging with with China uh, is still very much. It's, it's very much there. So you're right. We, we've been I think we've been lulled into a false sense of security simply because there hasn't been a hot war, a global hot war. But just beneath the surface surface, the magma chamber is brewing. And the magma chamber is pushing to the surface. And all it's going to need is the slightest provocation, some small earthquake, and the entire thing is going to explode again because there's no glue holding the darn thing together. Okay, and, and the, the church uh, has got to be a greater, greater voice in the public domain for human dignity, uh, you know, and, and that's that's the legacy of Gaudi Mitzpahs. You know, it, it, why not, you know, oh, we're going way off on a tangent, but, you know, I- instead of a synod on synods, why not have a synod on this very topic?
0: I, I think so, too. I mean, because, you know, at the heart of, when I read Gaudi spes I guess the reason I, I said I love it so much, because in some ways, I am an unabashed devotee, great love for St. John Paul II.
1: Me too. And
0: anything he's ever written, anything in in his is always so deep, but it's always so challenging, and it's always so beautiful. It always ends in hope. There's always something glorious, and it calls, calls me, it calls you, it calls the entire church to be like Christ, to serve and to do the good, like he did.
1: Oh yeah,
0: I mean, we're at a time now where even our the just the discourse, even within the church, I could talk about going down to tangents, but I and but we don't even have a sense of things the damage, the pain, the the ugliness, of calumny, of detraction, of
1: yes, yes.
0: and fueled maybe by an underlying simmering fear. And so I don't know, can you speak to that, Larry?
1: Well yeah, I mean obviously I'll speak first to John Paul. He's the greatest uh, the greatest influence in terms of a church man in, in my life, if not more. Uh, beyond the church uh, in other aspects of my life. He is, yeah, my personal hero. Uh, I mean, my first year in the seminary, I was in the seminary, my first year in the seminary was 1978, the year that he was elected. And I cannot communicate to listeners enough who were not, in a sense, uh, sentient during that time, how absolutely inspiring he was, how absolutely Earth-shakingly, magnificently inspiring, Karol Wojtyla was to an entire generation of young Catholics like myself, and uh, you know that. Now there's this move amongst traditionalists and amongst liberals to say, "Oh, he was canonized too soon. He didn't pay enough attention to the sex abuse crisis, and so on." Ah, piffle, piffle. I mean, this, this is just sniping of the highest order that I think is ill-deserved. I mean, you know, he wasn't perfect, and, and he may have had flaws in that in that direction. But come on, to diminish the greatness of what he taught and who he was and what he achieved uh, is it, it, just astounding. And and to go to your point, we need a similar inspiration in the church today. This is what Gaudi Spez, to bring it back to Gaudi says, was calling for. It was calling for the church to inspire expire. I mean this is the constant message too of like Bishop Robert Barron the church has to lead with what attracts with what inspires with the beauty of Christ which includes the true and the good and has to be put forward with verve with with vitality with a robustness without shame out on the world stage in the full Christological light of day and that that kind of inspiration is is is, is people are waiting for it it's it's a, we need that spark because things are ready to be ignited again in that direction. And uh, we just, you know, it's, it's no aspersion against Pope Francis, but the fact is every Pope since John Paul has, has got to live in his shadow because he did so inspire. and But we need that inspiration again.
0: Yeah, I think it even goes back to even beyond John Paul to Jesus Christ Himself, who could he could look in the face of sin, he can look in the face of a woman at a well, he can look at an adulteress, he can look at a tax collector, and yet he saw a beauty, and yes, he saw the sin, and he called it what it was, but. He in, somehow, in looking upon them with love and in speaking in truth, in love, I mean, it was transformative. We, I mean, we still tell the stories. We still share the experience because it's happened to us in our own lives because of him.
1: Oh, absolutely. Anybody that ever met John Paul II, and sadly, I'm not among their ranks. I was at the Philadelphia Civic Center as a seminarian when he visited the United States, but I was in the nosebleed seats. (laughs) So no, no, I did not get to actually meet him. Uh, But those who have met him said something similar to what you just said about Christ with the woman at the well. I mean, when he looked you in the eye and when you were in his presence, you just felt as if, this isn't idolatrous, but it's, about you know the theology mm-hmm. of sa- sanctity you felt like Christ himself was looking at you that the, the, his his he had such eyes and a soul of compassion and and the presence of Christ about him uh, that he just exuded it. And and that kind of inspiration, which is Christ, it is Christological. We're not, I'm not talking here about you, you. I'm glad you brought it back to Christ, because I don't want anybody to misunderstand me. What I'm saying is, well, you need a charismatic leader who can really rouse the troops. You know, no, that's not it at all. We need another man of, who combines deep deep sanctity, with a certain mysticism, with deep learning and intellect, and the force and power of character to sort of bring Christ present now. We need, we need <laughs> once again, another John Paul uh, to, to enter into the scene, and I don't know if we're going to see one again in our lifetimes. And like I said, that's not to knock Benedict or, or Francis or me, but, but uh, there, there was just something uniquely compelling about John Paul.
0: And we need more like Mother Teresa. We need yeah. those women yeah. who had the same ability to look at you and inspire you, to look at you with love. Everybody that ever met her, she the eyes say it all. Oh, yeah, and it yeah. and it all goes back to what you originally picked out of all of this. It's that universal call to holiness, because those yes. eyes, people need to see it when they look at my eyes. They need to see it when they look at your eyes, Larry.
1: Right, Do you know right. what I mean?
0: That's yeah. because then it's him. They're I,
1: gonna be looking a long time if they're looking for it in my eyes. Oh, but. <laughs> I don't
0: know, I've seen your eyes. I've got glimpses.
1: <laughs> Why, well, thank you. Yes, <laughs> that's it's right. true. Uh, but you're right, you're absolutely correct. Uh, and uh, Mother Teresa had that exact same charism. Um,
0: I bet you, you know, Dorothy Day
1: did too. I, I was just about to bring Dorothy Day up and I'm I'm not certain that that Dorothy Day had that same kind of presence that Mother Teresa, uh, that Mother Teresa did, but from everybody who knew her, uh, they say that she did. When you were in her presence, you were a, you were aware that you were in the presence of a woman of deep prayer, uh, of deep mystical insight into Christ, and a woman who walked the walk just like Mother Teresa did. And so, and of course. Dorothy Day was a woman of endless compassion, endless, deep, profound compassion. I love there that there's that great picture. I don't know when it was taken of Dorothy Day and Mother Teresa sitting next to each mm-hmm. other, you know. And I, I just, oh, that's such a beautiful photo because of, of what they both represented. And, and, and they both represented very similar charisms, one is a laywoman, one as a religious. But it was a it was a commitment to the poor. And and there's just, there's something about a commitment to the poor when it is Christologically rooted that gets to the very heart and essence of Christianity.
0: Yeah, I mean, we're not talking about perfect people. I mean, no, when, I, no, Jesus no. Christ alone is perfect, but, you know, I've heard the same said about Catherine de Huick Doherty, the baroness oh, yeah. who the, who set up the Madonna houses. I've even heard it said about Fulton Sheen.
1: Oh, yes, yes.
0: There is these lanterns who totally different personalities totally different backgrounds how is it they all come to the same point it's the same it's the same point
1: yeah yeah they do and it's it's a Christological point and and uh, Balthazar makes this this point you know in several places in his work because obviously Balthazar was all about you know sanctity and and the theology of the saints uh, being a sort of icon of the beauty of Christ and, and he, he makes this point, too, that, you know, to borrow a phrase from the first George Bush, there's a thousand points of light. And, and, and you know, Balthazar is essentially saying there's, there's a million points of light, a million different saints. They all bring their unique idiosyncratic personalities to bear on their unique vocations. But in every single iteration and every single unique expression, everything leads back to Christ. There is a common denominator that links every single saint you've ever met.
0: This concludes part one of our conversation with Dr. Larry Chapp discussing Gaudium et Spes, the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world. To hear and or to download this conversation along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com or you can find it within the free Discerning Hearts app. Be sure to check out Dr. Chapp's blog site, Gaudium et Spes, 22.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, which is to bring authentic and rock-solid spiritual formation freely to souls around the world. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope you tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time in our conversations with Dr. Larry Chap.